Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the podcast. Today I'm chatting again about my favourite subject. I could, I'm probably going to change this whole podcast to just be acne, skincare focused, if I'm honest. But my guest is a really exciting guest. Her name is Sophia Ruiz. She is a holistic, research-obsessed esthetician and founder of a botanical skincare line. She's passionate about empowering women to achieve clearer skin using a combination of her unique integrative approach to skincare and holistic education. I've been following you for probably a couple of years now on Instagram and I really resonated with your message and the fact that you were so open and honest about your struggles and just learning and sharing as you go. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. This is going to be so fun. (laughs) And can you talk a little bit more about your story? So like, how did you get into holistic health and focusing on acne and skincare in the first place? Yeah. So, so I've had acne since I was about like nine or 10. Um, I actually had my first blackhead when I was seven years old, which is, I remember my mom and I sitting at the kitchen table. She was like, what's on your lip? And I was like, I don't know. And then she like squeezed it and she was like, oh my gosh, you have a blackhead. And I was like, I'm seven, okay. Um, So that was seven. And then um, between like nine and 11, I developed like more like what we would, a a blackhead is what's called an open comedone. It's not inflamed. Whereas when, you know, you develop inflamed acne, that's called like a papular pustule. And sometimes there's cysts. So I started to develop pustules when I was about between nine and 11. Um, And I was, you know, my mom got me on proactive and, Active was really crazy. It dried my skin out like crazy. Um, and it was, it kind of worked, but then it kind of didn't. So it was just like this weird experience. Um, I tried all sorts of different stuff between like nine and 15. And then um, it just it was just always like reoccurring. Like it never got better, um, but it never got worse. Um, and then I started uh, birth control when I was 15 years old because I had two periods in one month. And so my doctor was like, well, your hormones are out of whack. So let's put you on birth control to fix that. And I was like, okay, you know, me not knowing. And then um, my skin didn't get better, um, but it didn't get worse. Um, and then around like two years later, my skin went full cystic and I got hair loss. Um, I started sprouting these weird hairs, like out of my sideburns, out of my chin, out of my chest. And it was like nothing like super noticeable. Um, but it was definitely like a, what we would call like mild hirsutism, um, which can be a symptom of PCOS. So I 
was like convinced I had PCOS. Everybody told me, oh, you don't have PCOS, like PCOS. And then, you know, I, but I, I never had issues. Like my period was always like, once I actually came off birth control, my period was always regular. Um, and, but prior to that, you know, obviously I had done some holistic investigation um, and realized like, I need to figure out what's going on with my body because obviously birth control like isn't working for me. And so that was when I kind of stumbled upon all of this holistic, you know, information um, and basically just decided like, I need to get off birth control and I need to figure out like why I'm having these issues. And so I did a ton of research. I learned about like MTHFR um, mutations and I learned about, you know, different, all of the different vitamins and minerals and how they work in synergy and basically realized that I was extremely micronutrient deficient. I was extremely, um, you know, like, my, my diet was out of whack, out of balance. Um, and so, you know, I kind of went through this process of trying to figure it all out um, and didn't really find anything. So I, I didn't find that anything like really worked for me. So then I decided that I was going to explore the skincare route. Um, obviously, I wanted to like keep my diet and, you know, lifestyle in check and, you know, take a holistic pro uh, approach in, in the sense of like, um, maintaining my overall health. But then I decided I was just going to go the skincare route for my acne because the lifestyle and diet wasn't healing it. So then that's when I became an esthetician. I went to esthetician school. I learned all about the skin. I already had like a little bit of foreknowledge, um, but basically just went full-blown esthetician, uh, graduated in 2018, and out of school just basically realized like I don't really want to do facials. I don't really want to like work in a spa. I loved the education. I loved writing. I loved research, which I discovered um, was really my passion in school. And so then once I got out of school, um, I actually ended up having a baby, had some time at home and started writing. And then obviously that led to kind of because my interest was like in holistic health, basically became a holistic research writer for a couple of different um brands and companies and um and then basically ended up making my own instagram and that's when it all really the real research really started to come in and um i had already done you know a lot of research on the skin itself but never really knew how deeply interconnected our body systems are with our skin and then i fully like uncovered all of the mechanisms and how they connect and um, how diet impacts those systems, which then, you know, has a domino effect on the skin. So um, that was kind of my journey to where I am now. Um, now, obviously, I have the skincare line. Um, I've done all of this research on, you know, the internal factors and the external factors and how they all kind of converge together. So my journey definitely started with acne, um, but now I'm in this place where, you know, I'm, I'm a, a researcher full time that, you know, the scope is further than just acne. It's also about the holistic health of the body. So um, I think I, I, I've, over the course of the years, I've just really developed like this really integrative mindset where I see where the need for Western medicine is, but I'm also all about prevention and just the, the overwhelming like benefit, all encompassing benefit that holistic health can have. Yeah, that really drew me to your page. Um, yeah. Just having that bridge between the two because there are People who like like just skincare, it's all like the products, nothing else. Yeah. Diet doesn't affect your skin. And there's people who's like, yeah. it's all in your gut. Like that's the only thing. But then they're yeah. rubbing coconut oil on their face. I'm oh, like, yeah. please, we need, <laughs> we need somewhere in the middle. So I'm really glad that you do that. Um, yeah. Acne yeah. is like 
very complex. So we're both like yeah. clever people. We're smart. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's still been a struggle for us to like figure it out yeah. for ourselves. Absolutely. Um, so it's very complex. And we were saying even before we hit record, like we wanted to both be like detectives forensic yeah. before because it is, we're like a health. We need to look yeah. deep. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we've had people on in the past and I've done a few episodes on skin and acne and all of that, but I've never really spoken about the um, physiology of the skin. So kind of yeah. the skin layers um, and people hear these terms like epidermis thrown around, but I, I think a lot of people don't know what they are. So just like a brief yeah. science class, could you talk us through the different layers of the skin and what we need to know if we're struggling with acne? Yeah, for sure. So yeah, so physiology primer of the skin. Basically, um, the most important layers are the two, the dermis and the epidermis. Um, the dermis is like where the blood supply is, where your immune cells come from. And basically, it's the most um, connected to your inner body. It's where all of the nutrients are supplied to your skin. Um, then you have the epidermis, which when we're talking about external you know, issues with acne, the epidermis is the most important. So the most important layer of the epidermis, in my opinion, is the stratum corneum, which if you've heard the term skin barrier, it's your stratum corneum. It's basically where your skin meets your environment. And so our skin barrier's number one job is to protect our skin the lower layers of the skin, like the dermis and the lower layers of the epidermis, to actually, it, it, it's, it's a protective um, layer. So it protects the environment from getting to the deeper layers and causing inflammation and, you know, uh, irritation, um, mast cell activation, so like, you know, allergic reactions. Um, and when this layer is depleted, you're allowing all of these things from your environment, like you know, pollutants in the air and allergens to get into your skin and incite inflammation. And that's what your skin doesn't want. It desperately wants to protect you from that. Um, so the stratum corneum really is essential. Um, and basically, you know, you the, the, the hydration is in all of the deeper layers of the skin, um, you know, and so there's lots of different enzymes in there that work and, and function to produce skin cells um, and to exfoliate the skin and maintain hydration and all of that stuff. So it, it really is like a full working machine and the stratum corneum really is what preserves the function of that full machine um, and all of the mechanics of the skin. So yeah, so dermis, epidermis, and the stratum corneum is definitely one of the most important. Perfect. And I always say people know this stuff when they could literally explain it to a five-year-old and it would make sense. Yeah. So you do a really yeah. good job of <laughs> taking this very complex subject. And I think everyone who listened just really understood and got that. So thank you. <laughs> and I was going to start off with like the internal factors, but I want to go straight. We'll do it the opposite way around. So I was talking about this external factors first. So mm -hmm. with the epidermis and the dermis in acne, like which one is it a combination of both that's malfunctioning? So it's definitely a combination of both. Um, so you have the epidermis, right, with the stratum corneum. If your stratum corneum is disrupted, which in acne patients it is, they have science to prove that the pH is actually disrupted in acne prone skin. So when the pH is disrupted, then you have issues with the stratum corneum because the stratum corneum really only functions in an acidic environment, which is between 4.5 and 5.5. Researchers go back and forth on which number it is, but generally it's between that range. So, um, you know, when your stratum corneum is dysfunctional, then everything else is dysfunctional um, below. Um, with acne, um, basically, 
the, the mechanics of the skin really, really changes. So it changes in the sense of um, sebaceous gland activity, which is your what produces the oil on your face. It's called sebum. Um, and then you have changes in the keratinization of the skin, which is basically a fancy way of saying skin cell production. So um, skin cells are made of a lot of keratin. So you have um, these skin cells that are being produced um, in the lower layers of the epidermis that then reach the stratum corneum um, eventually. And so the sebum production is altered, keratinization slash skin cell production is altered. And then you also have just the general prime dermis um, for inflammation. So your, your dermis is already prone to inflammation um, in acne prone skin, um, but it's actually the the dermis inflammation is actually a result of acne as opposed to like a cause in most cases. So, um, but definitely there is a lot of alterations that happen um, in the epidermis first, but then, then the dermis can get inflamed as well. And then that can cause further issues. Mm -hmm. And I want to break down the um, keratinization issue and the sebum issue, because I know that yeah. you have some ideas as to what we could do to help either of them. So yeah. with the sebum, like what are the factors that influence sebum levels? Um, and same with the keratinization, like, can we improve that? Is it genetic? Yeah, so there's definitely a genetic aspect to it. Um, definitely um, the internal factors are more involved with the genetic, but if we're talking about, you know, like the external, um, just looking at the skin itself, anything that stimulates inflammation um, is going to be a stimulant of sebum production and a stimulant of keratinization or skin cell production. So when you have too much skin cell production and you have too much sebum production, those factors kind of go hand in hand and they create comedones on the skin or pore clogs, which then if you have enough of the other factors, um, the external factors and kind of it's a big, you know, symphony of factors, then you can have an inflamed acne um, lesion. But basically, so you have inflammation and free radicals, which inflammation and free radicals go hand in hand. Free radicals stimulate inflammation and inflammation can produce free radicals. So when you have these factors present in the skin, and we can talk about how that exactly happens um, in a little bit, um, then you have uh, these traditionally, like if you think about cancer, free radicals stimulate researchers have shown stimulate cancer formation because they're proliferative. These free radicals and the inflammatory signaling molecules are proliferative, so they produce more. Um, whereas, you know, the opposite is like you're not producing enough skin cells or, or enough, you know, you're not proliferating enough, if that makes sense. So the inflammation and the free radicals are proliferative. So when they go to the skin, you're actually stimulating a high production of skin cells and you're stimulating a high production of these cells in the sebaceous gland called sebocytes. And then these sebocytes, if more of them travel up to the stratum corneum, then they dissolve and they leave, you know, sebum on the surface of the skin. So you have you know, these, these proliferative agents that are causing more sebocytes to form, more, you know, sebum, and then you have more skin cells that are forming. And so you're basically just setting the stage for a lot of pore clogging happening on the skin. And so it's just, it's, it's a function of inflammation and free radicals that lead to these processes happening in the skin. So uh, there's a lot of reasons why inflammation and free radicals can be present on the skin, um, but essentially it just comes, really comes down to those two. And with the, um, the sebum production, I believe that linoleic acid has a massive effect on that. Yeah. So using oils topically 
obviously yeah. eating the, the right fats. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah. So, so inflammation and free radicals are the two pathways that are generally like the most important, right? But then you also have the, like what you kind of mentioned, you have alterations in sebum composition that are actually contributing to acne as well. So the really cool thing is like researchers have done analysis, analyses on acne patient sebum and they looked at the different levels of fatty acids and cholesterol and squalene and all of these different um, lipids that are present in sebum and the really interesting thing is is like there's a very specific composition of sebum that leads to acne um, and that is a linoleic acid deficiency 2.2 times the amount of squalene in the skin and then um, a, like kind of like more triglycerides, um, but those aren't really, the, the biggest factors are the linoleic acid deficiency and the squalene. Um, but basically, like you said, you can use oils to correct the linoleic acid deficiency. And this actually helps to repair the skin barrier. So linoleic acid is the precursor to ceramides. If you don't have linoleic acid in your skin, you're, gonna, you're not gonna produce enough ceramides to actually form the skin barrier because ceramides are the building blocks of the skin barrier. So you have, you know, linoleic acid deficiency, which then translates to less skin barrier function on the skin. And obviously that can be a primer for inflammation and free radicals in the skin. Um, and so basically the, when you add linoleic acid rich oils onto the skin, it helps to provide the linoleic acid that's missing. That way you can repair the skin barrier and prevent the inflammation that comes with less skin barrier function. Um, and with squalene, it's kind of interesting because that's actually more connected to an internal imbalance. Um, and the, the, there's really no way to address that topically. The, the way that you actually prevent acne that's related to squalene is by preventing the inflammation and the free radicals. Um, because squalene, which is actually very um, nourishing for the skin in small quantities, in larger quantities, it's a real, real issue because you have free radicals that come in contact with squalene and then squalene oxidizes and it forms squalene peroxide and squalene peroxide like if you hear the word comedogenic um, which is often like you hear that when you hear like coconut oil or different makeup ingredients um, it's basically a fancy word for pore clogging and so squalene peroxide more than anything is one of the most comedogenic lipids that you could have on your skin so if you have squalene peroxide on your skin you could basically guarantee that you have acne and pore clogs um, so the way that you prevent squalene peroxide from forming obviously you can take measures internally to reduce the amount of squalene on your skin but if you don't know why it's happening or you can't address it and it's just like not really working you have to just mitigate that free radicals those free radicals and that inflammation to prevent that squalene peroxide from forming and how does the squalene um differ from the squalane oils yeah. that people can put on the skin yeah so that's that's a really important differentiation squalene is highly highly susceptible to oxidation whereas squalane is very resistant to oxidation you can heat it like a ton and it won't oxidize squalene peroxide on the squalene on the other hand will form a peroxide very very easily and is squalane one of the oils that you would recommend um yeah not, what are some other of the high linoleic acid um oils that you would yeah, so so squalene is great. I think squalene can definitely be a good component. I don't think it 
I think if we're talking about what's going to be the most beneficial, those linoleic acid rich oils are definitely going to be the most beneficial. Um, swelling can be great, uh, but it's kind of, it has its place in a routine, but it, you kind of just have to like see where your routine is at, what your priorities are and um, you know, what your whole routine looks like. And if you can add it in, then you add it in. But um, I would definitely, definitely emphasize these linoleic acid rich oils because they replenish that deficiency. Um, and there's not a squalane defici deficiency in acne prone skin. It's a linoleic acid deficiency. So if we're talking about resolving acne and really targeting acne, we have to target those imbalances because those are what it, that is what is contributing to the acne formation. So um, linoleic acid rich oils, some really good examples are black seed oil, borage seed oil, um, rosehip seed oil, prickly pear seed oil, cucumber seed oil is a really good one. And there are, there are a ton. Um, it just really, you just kind of have to like look at the composition and search up the composition of each individual oil to kind of, you know, figure out which one has the highest content. But generally, borage, black seed, and prickly pear are one of the most, or some of the most um, rich in linoleic acid. Um, and a lot of these have really great antioxidants in them as well. So you're both addressing that linoleic acid deficiency and then also blocking that squalene peroxide formation. Um, whereas, you know, some other oils can be really problematic for the skin um, and they don't address, they have different fatty acid compositions that don't actually address those issues. Um, so it's, yeah, in my opinion, linoleic acid rich oils are like a miracle for the skin. Would one of those like not really beneficial ones be jojoba oil? I know that that's like really yeah. promoted as being like non-comedogenic, but does it just not have that extra um, anti-inflammatory, anti-acne powers as the other ones? Yeah, so the, the really interesting thing is like, <clears throat> you know, you see a lot of different claims made about different oils, like, oh, it's so nourishing and so, you know, like hydrating or like all of these buzzwords are really just thrown around. And the thing that I always think about when, obviously, because we come from, a, you and I come from a root cause perspective, I'm always looking at, well, why is acne happening in the first place? It's not an oil deficiency because you have excess oil production. So you actually don't need more oil per se. You need to target that deficiency or whatever imbalances are happening in the skin. And when you have, so you have other fatty acids that are often used or are often um, in the oils that people use for skin, right? So the fatty acids like oleic acid, um, palmitic acid, sometimes steric acid, which is like in tallow, which has kind of like made its, you know, made a wave in the natural beauty space. Um, so all of those fatty acids, acne prone skin doesn't have any problem producing any of those fatty acids what it's having problem a problem producing or or you know accumulating in its in sebum is the linoleic acid so in my mind it doesn't make sense to add more oil that's not actually going to fix this the altered sebum composition that is present in acne prone skin so you know some examples of those different oils like I know oleic acid, which in and of itself can be an issue, and we can maybe talk about that. I don't want to go on too much of a tangent, but oleic acid, you know, it's like an argan oil, avocado oil, um, olive oil, and, you know, some other different seed oils like bulb seed oil and, um, you know, things like, for example, um, I'm blinking on, there's one more that was really, really important, but I'm blinking on it. But generally, you know, you could just go look up the compositions of different seed oils. And some of them, you know, have 
really high oleic acid contents. Um, and, they, and they can also vary with season and harvesting and all of that. So sometimes, you know, they may be around the 50% range, but other times you get an oil that's around the 70% range. And so it just really, really varies. And that one can be problematic, but it doesn't address any of the issues. Same with palmitic acid oils, like, you know, um, mango seed butter and steric acid, like tallow. And then you have, you know, some of the coconut oil fatty acids that are problematic for skin as well. And that's lauric acid, which is highly comedogenic. So all of these different fatty acids really do nothing for acne prone skin. Um, and I feel like it's just a lot of really good marketing that gets these, you know, um, like, you know, like you said, jojoba oil. Um, it's it's non-comedogenic, but it doesn't address any of the imbalances in acne prone skin. So mm -hmm. lots of really good marketing going on and nothing actually like about, you know, bio, biocompatible skincare that really addresses those root issues. Definitely. And once one brand starts offering the product, everyone else, they don't really do their research. They're like, oh, it must be good. Let's just make yeah. our version of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's why education is so, so important. And that's why definitely I take like a two pronged approach to acne, because I think education is just as important as, um, you know, providing a solution, a tangible solution to people. Because if you don't know how you're using what you're using and how it works, you're not gonna have any confidence in really you know, constructing a treatment regimen and, and following through on it. And a lot of times, you know, different treatment regimens, obviously there's definitely wrong treatment regimens, but you also need to give time to a treatment regimen to see results. Um, you know, we, we kind of talked about before we started, like, you know, your skin has a, you know, it's like a 21 to 28 day resurfacing, you know, rate you know, where the skin cells turn over. And then obviously, you know, like your hair is the same way. So it can take time to actually see results with your skin and your hair. Some people see results very quickly, but other people, you know, it's like, it just takes time. So um, having that confidence in a treatment regimen through education is also really, really important. And I feel like it just dispels all of those marketing issues because you're an empowered consumer and you know what your skin needs yeah so putting that in the mind of the person beforehand that it might take time don't switch things up every don't other week <laughs> because it could you could be on the right track and then you just throw in something else and derail your efforts totally totally don't yeah. make the mistakes that we've made in oh, yes. the years <laughs> like a thousand times just learn from our mistakes and <laughs> What about fungal acne? So that's like a, um, a really big thing right now as well. And one of the top recommendations for that is like avoid oils at all costs. Yeah. Yeah. So, so it's really interesting because there's really no differentiation between fungal acne and, um, you know, what, what they would consider bacterial acne. Both P. acnes, which is the bacteria that drives acne or has been identified to be associated with acne, we actually don't know if it's a causative agent in acne. Uh, the research is still kind of, you know, everybody likes to say, oh, P. acnes is the bacteria that causes acne. There's actually no hard research to actually establish that as a causative agent. Um, and, you know, then you have the fungal acne. When people refer to fungal acne, what they're really talking about is malassezia. Um, the really interesting thing is like malassezia and P. acnes, they both feed off of lipids, oils. So when people say, oh, oils aren't good for fungal acne, technically oils aren't good for, you know, bacterial acne either. Um, but you can see improvements in, in both cases with oils. And it really comes down to, are you addressing that deficiency in your sebum that is allowing these bacteria to overgrow. Um, and that, you know, there's slight differences in the way that malassezia and piacnus grows. Like they have different um, 
you know, and I guess this is a way to like talk about the microbiome is they really work in synergy. And, and actually these bacteria aren't bad. It's just when they, like, if your malassezia is here, your P. acnes is usually here. But if your P. acnes is here, your malassezia is usually here. And they counteract one another to bring balance. So you actually have to look into the factors of, of why these bacteria are preferentially overgrowing one another. And sometimes that can be pH imbalances. Sometimes that can be changes in sebum composition. And like I said, that's why it's so important that you're identifying why this acne is happening in the first place. And whether you have, you know, um, you know, malassezia overgrowth or piacnus overgrowth, it really comes down to looking at that linoleic acid deficiency and that squalene peroxide. Um, squalene peroxide is associated with both malassezia and piacnus. So there's obviously there's differences in how they develop because there's different regional differences and sometimes you know um, you know there's differences in the way they present, like the way that the acne spots will look. Um, but at the end of the day, there's lots of similarities, and so we can take a similar approach. Um, and just because we don't know everything about, we definitely know more about bacterial acne than we do fungal acne, um, but the, from what we can tell based on skin analysis, they really aren't that different. So in the meantime, we can take a very similar approach. Um, and oftentimes I find that the reason why people break out when they say they have fungal acne and they break out with oils is because they're using the wrong oils. Um, so yeah, so it's just really, there's really not much of a difference and we haven't identified the minimal differences between the two. Um, so in the meantime, we can definitely take a very similar approach. And I'm guessing some of these antioxidant oil, like antioxidant rich oils, like the black cumin seed oil, um, and some of the ingredients like rosemary that can be used in skincare, they have antifungal effects as well. Yeah, so definitely. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they have, they definitely have like dual um, activities on the skin. Um, you definitely don't want to get like too excessive with something like rosemary. Uh, like I don't want people to think like if you like take, rosemary oil and you put it in your hands and you oh, put it on your face. That. <laughs> That's not going to catch. The, the, the really, um, you know, like the, the interesting thing about, um, you know, when we use, you know, not, when we use any medicine, right? Like whether it's Western or herbal or whatever, you have these biphasic kind of what we call biphasic. So, you know, something might be beneficial at, you know, one level, but really harmful at another. And so the thing with things like rosemary and oregano and tea tree and all of these things that, you know, have these antibacterial, antifungal properties is that for them to actually be effective at killing the bacteria on your face and, you know, kind of counteracting acne and blocking acne formation in that way, you have to use them at such high levels that it actually ends up disrupting the skin barrier because the, you have these what's called terpenes in these different um, you know essential oils um, or extracts that contribute to the smell and the taste of these different extracts. Um, but they they are also what give the oils and the extracts their um, antibacterial antifungal properties, and so you have to use them at very high concentrations. And then those terpenes actually have skin barrier opening properties. So then you're opening your skin barrier and kind of doing exactly the opposite of what you want to do when you're trying to treat acne. So they're, I, the, the good thing, though, is that their antioxidant qualities are very, very effective and very by their, their antioxidant properties are very bioavailable on the skin at small quantities. So it's about finding that, you know, that balance of you know, not disrupting the skin barrier and taking a very kind of like conservative, gentle approach as opposed to like, I want to go kill all that bacteria with these, you know, different things. So 
there's an allopathic approach like kill go kill yeah yeah because you can then then you can just end up causing more acne in the long run because you have all these pollutants that are getting into your skin through the open skin barrier and creating more inflammation so it's just yeah it's all about balance and knowing how to use you know different herbal extracts in the most gentlest form but also in a way that's going to be effective and that's why you know, um, different chemists are so, you know, that's why chemists are making so much money. And, you know, um, they're, they're definitely like a, a long-standing profession because they understand these percentages and the different use, usage rates and what they do at different percentages. And so it's definitely like homemade skincare. Sometimes that's why I say that because it sometimes kind of scares me because I'm like, yeah, you're just throwing a couple drops in your palm, not knowing you're making like a 5% dilution of this oil, essential oil, and then putting it on your face and disrupting your skin barrier. And that's why so many people get fed up with like, you know, holistic approaches to the skin. Like it never worked for me and it just wasn't good for me. And I'm like, no, 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 no. You just have been using it the wrong way. Like, let me help you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Don't really out completely just because you read like a wiki, Wikipedia. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Wiki how to. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And just because something's good doesn't mean like more is better. Like water in excess can be toxic and fatal. Exactly. Exactly. Or like can create photosensitivity and cause Mm -hmm. you damage and predispose you to cancer. Like there are definitely essential oils that do that topically at certain concentrations. You have to be super careful. Yeah. I cringe when I see people like drinking essential oils. I'm like, please, please don't. (laughs) Or like straight on the skin. Oh, Oh God. Oh gosh, it's yep. yeah. Recipe for disaster. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm interested with your, I'm having a look at the ingredients of your Clarity um, yeah. product and you use um, vitamin or vitamin E as yeah. an antioxidant. Like that's not one that's usually like chosen by brands these days. Usually it's like vitamin C, um, yeah. vitamin A. They're like more well-known, I think. But why yeah. did you choose that one? So it's really interesting, um, you know, Vitamin E is definitely well underutilized. Um, and I think it's just because a lot of people are afraid of it. There are some studies that show that certain vitamin E molecules can be comedogenic. But the really interesting thing is like these, this is like, we're talking about one study that was performed in like the 1970s and it took rabbit ears and they put, you know, undiluted ingredients on rabbit ears. And if it formed a comedone, then it was considered comedogenic. Yeah. So, you know, if you're putting a hundred percent vitamin E oil on your skin, it's going to clog your pores because oftentimes these oils are very, very thick. And so you have to take into account like the consistency of the oil, but also the properties of the oil and the fatty acid compositions of the oil. And if you're putting really super thick vitamin E oil, it's going to like stop oxygen from entering your skin. And then we start that process of like inflammation and free radicals and then, you know, pore clogs and all of that. Right. Um, so vitamin E, I think, is really underutilized, mostly because people are really scared of it because of this one, you know, terribly done study. <laughs> um, and, you know, the interesting thing, like with the oil that I've created, it's a full spectrum oil, a full spectrum vitamin E extract. So you have different molecules in the vitamin E family. Vitamin E is like a family kind of like the B complex. Um, People think of vitamin E as one singular molecule, but it's actually many. And so some of these different, like the alpha tosoferol is often the one that's used in skincare. Um, And there's, you know, some some companies that do vitamin E serum, but it's definitely, like you said, less popular. Um, And so 
people often stick to the synthetic alpha tosylferol molecule. That one is not comedogenic, but it's natural analogs, the, the actual natural form that you find in like sunflower seed, it can be comedogenic because they're, they're really like thick and big molecules. But then you have other of these different molecules um, that are in the vitamin E family that actually are smaller. They're, you know, they have a thinner consistency and um, they actually work very differently. So um, basically I use all of the high levels of what I know to be the, like the thinner molecules, the smaller molecules, they have less comedogenic properties. Um, and I stay away from all of the comedogenic ones and they have they have the tiniest it has the tiniest tiniest amount um to work in synergy with these other molecules such that it produces a better effect because when all of these molecules are working together on the skin they work a lot better um, than if they're just on their on your skin alone so i use enough of those other molecules to create a synergy effect without having them predominate the oil um, in a way that would cause pore clogging issues so with all of that the antioxidant activity, your, your skin prefers vitamin E over any other antioxidant because that's what your skin actually uses to reduce oxidative stress on the skin, free radical damage. Um, the interesting thing about acne prone skin is that acne prone skin is vitamin E deficient. So like their little, you know, the skin, the sebum is linoleic acid deficient. It's also vitamin E deficient. So your skin actually, if you have acne, it actually needs vitamin E. And so all these companies are scared of using it because there's all of this buzz around it, like with marketing and, you know, you know, myths from these bad studies, but it's actually what your skin needs. And so I took the leap because I'm like, I'm not scared of bad marketing because when you educate consumers, they are empowered themselves to make decisions about an, an ingredient. And so if they have the right education, they're going to understand why it's beneficial. So I wasn't afraid of it. Most companies are just like, I want whatever marketing, you know, I want it to be totally, a totally marketable product. So I'm definitely not worried about that. So I took the leap and I was like, this is going to be beneficial for acne prone skin because vitamin E is low in acne prone sebum. So you need vitamin E. And so, um, and when it comes to the skin, you have these, you know, it's a fatty tissue. So obviously if your skin wouldn't secrete oil every day, if it wasn't a fatty tissue, it needs oil. And so the fat soluble vitamin E is much more active in the skin than say like vitamin C, which you have to use at really high quantities to actually get like a dramatic effect. Whereas like you can use very little vitamin E and get this great antioxidant effect. Um, and the issue with vitamin C is like, it's also an acid. So if you're using that as your, you know, on your skin and your skin barrier is disrupted and you know, you have irritation, you actually need to build up your skin, your skin's skin barrier and repair that skin barrier before you can even really use high levels of acids like vitamin C that you need to use to get the antioxidant effects. So you actually, it's actually not a good solution for acne prone skin I've found. And I've found like when back when I was, you know, kind of exploring all of these different skincare options, I found that vitamin C actually was not good for my skin. I didn't see any benefit with it. Um, and there are some forms that work and whatever, but it's just, when it comes down to it, you want a fat soluble antioxidant that you can use at low quantities 
to really get the most benefit with the like the least the most conservative treatment that's really the name of my game is how can we be as conservative as possible to get the maximum effect without causing side effects and so that's really my approach and that's part of the reason why i selected vitamin e amazing i remember using um the ordinary they came out with like the ascorbic acid powder and i was yeah. like oh and there's like you have to dose it yourself i feel like a chemist like yeah. i'll just try like half a scoop which was way too much and um, my face was so red peel. yeah you basically yeah, gave yeah. A chemical peel which you know like chemical peels are awesome and i think if you can utilize acids at high levels in a very professional way they're very beneficial um especially in the case of acne but the thing is is like all skin is really different some people have better skin barrier function you know with acne other people have less you know skin barrier function with acne and so that can really contribute to um your reactivity to acids and if you're just giving yourself like chemical burns on your skin that's really not that's not really what you want you want you want your skin to be as healthy as possible and so that means really meeting your skin where it's at and oftentimes that means avoiding like high levels of acids on your skin um, obviously acids at lower levels can be really, really beneficial. Um, but those just for antioxidant activity, you don't want to put your skin through that. Mm -hmm. And companies like the ordinary, they're great because they like offer really like cheap, affordable yeah. things and good yeah, products. Them. Yeah. But people like use them too much. They combine things that shouldn't be combined yeah. and make problems worse. So I'd rather go to a company that has put the science in, knows what synergistic effects yeah on what to not use alongside yeah. yeah you can just purchase it and you know you're getting a good product exactly. and a good synergy yeah and i just had flashbacks to when i, I must have been a teenager just buying yeah. um vitamin e soft gel capsules popping yeah. them and like squeezing it on my skin and it made my acne worse but it was probably like the worst quality supplement yeah. ever <laughs> and i was yeah. like a thick layer on my face so i admit that i've not used vitamin e topically since that moment but you've convinced me otherwise yeah well yeah i mean like that that's definitely an example of one of those more like thicker higher molecular weight um molecules that can be really like you know pore clogging for your skin because comedogenicity or the pore clogging nature of a certain ingredient is really determined by like the molecular weight so if you have a high molecular weight substance it's more prone to pore clogging so i really tend to stick to those low molecular weight ingredients um that are going to be just as beneficial and they all work together but they you're using the least amount that you can possibly use with with the least risk and that product that i used was meant for like oral consumption yeah. it wasn't yeah. even designed for skin <laughs> so i think i read it on some sort of blog post i yeah. thought i'd give it a try as That's everyone does you, man. They will do, <laughs> do you love coffee but have been told it's bad and needs to be avoided if you're struggling with hormone imbalances like acne, PMS, and period problems. Honestly, most coffee out there should be avoided because the majority are contaminated with things like mold and pesticides, which can drive inflammation and those feelings like anxiousness and jitteriness after drinking. But what if I told you there was a coffee option that tastes great, is organic and mold-free, and also provides healing properties from reishi mushroom spores? Enter Organo King Coffee, my latest obsession. I didn't drink it for years because it would always wreck my sleep and leave me feeling like an anxious mess. But King Coffee does the exact opposite. Don't worry, it's not one of those fake coffee alternatives made from herbs. And if you've tried other mushroom coffee brands out there, 
I promise this one actually tastes good and is way better and provides so many more health benefits. If you haven't already heard of the benefits of reishi mushroom or Ganoderma, then let me give you a quick overview. It's known as the king of medicinal mushroom family due to its superpowers such as supporting healthy immune balance and being an adrenal adaptogen. This means if your immune system is overactive due to autoimmunity or suppressed because of things like chronic infections and you're not really sure if your cortisol levels are high or low, the ratio can help to balance things out and it promotes homeostasis within the body. It's also antibacterial, antiviral, antifungal, anti-inflammatory, pretty much everything that we want from a product. Because of its potency, I'd recommend starting slowly if you're someone who's struggling with more complex chronic health issues or is sensitive. If you're thinking, why can't I just take a reishi mushroom supplement? Good question. Organo use a patented process to gently crack the inner and outer shell, offering 99% bioavailability of the reishi mushroom spores. I also explain this as being like the differences with probiotics, the regular lactobacillus, bifidobacterium options that we can all buy readily in health food shops have some benefit, but nowhere near as much as the spore-based probiotics that I use all the time with clients. Wanting to give Organo King Coffee a try for yourself? Visit vivanaturalhealth.myorganogold.com. This will all be spelled out and linked in the episode show notes and also my bio link on Instagram. I really hope you love it as much as I do, but now let's get back to the show. And on Instagram recently, you've been um, talking a little bit about benzoyl peroxide and people yeah. would be like surprised to see like someone holistic like you recommending a more conventional treatment. So why yeah. is it that you like that um, product? Yeah, so I think, I, like, like I kind of mentioned, I take a very integrated approach to acne. I think that there are definitely cases where um, acne needs some kind of conventional help. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting because, you know, you have people who will try out all of these holistic remedies, right? And they're like, my skin's not getting better, my skin's not getting better. And they will panic and they will jump all the way to like Accutane, antibiotics, um, topical antibiotics, systemic antibiotics, all of these really aggressive treatments that, you know, if you speak to some people, they're, they have long standing side effects. So like there, there was a meta-analysis done, which is like the highest gold standard of research because it looks at all of these different controlled, you know, all of these different trials and all of these different studies that basically give you a really good idea of what the risks are with like, or the benefits with a certain, you know, product. So they, they did a meta-analysis on acne patients who had used both systemic and topical or one or the other um, antibiotics. And they found that these um, patients were actually at an increased risk of developing upper respiratory infections. And so even if you're just using, they say, oh, like topical, you know, antibiotic therapies, it's just, it's just topical, it's just local, it's not systemic, whatever. But they actually have profound effects on your immune system and your immune function. And so um, what, what the exact quantitative risk is in that case, we don't really know, but we know the risk is there. And, you know, same with Accutane, there's like people, oftentimes people will not go on Accutane because they're terrified of the side effects that can come with it, like bone pain and, you know, like all of these different things. And then some people even develop, have long-standing side effects, like, you know, autoimmune issues. And, you know, the incidence, you know, of that happening in research is not really clear, but you talk to a lot of people, they're like, you know, I developed an autoimmune condition after taking Accutane. And so, you know, there's, 
those issues, right? So people jump from doing like just holistic all the way to like Accutane and antibiotics and over here. Sorry, um, <laughs> the light's getting like in my face. Um, so you have, you know, these people that, um, you know, jump from one to the other. And I think, you know, there are definitely cases where, so this, there's, I think there's four pathways to acne. I've established these four pathways. So you have the free radicals and the inflammation, and then you have the sebum composition, but then you also have cases, which we were talking about the mold toxicity before. You have cases where people's antibacterial action on the skin is actually very impaired. So your skin's immune system normally does a really good job at keeping bacteria from overgrowing. But if you have immunodeficiencies that prevent you from actually killing that bacteria on the skin, you're going to keep breaking out. So, you know, that can be because you're, you know, you have an autoimmune disease and you need immunosuppressant drugs. You have, you know, mold toxicity in your home and your immune, the mycotoxins are causing your immune system to downregulate. Um, and, you, you know, maybe you've even had, you know, chronic bacterial acne for a long time and now your vitamin D receptors on your skin aren't functioning the way they're supposed to. And vitamin D is a really key component of that antibacterial function in the skin and keeping acne bacteria at bay. So you have these, it, these you know, kind of issues that can cause people to actually, you know, need antibacterial help. And when we're talking about what's the most effective, what's the most research proven, what's the, you know, um, something that people can really rely on, benzoyl peroxide is definitely one of those things. And so for the people who can't actually like move out of a mold expose, you know, move out of their moldy home um, and reduce their exposure or can't afford to, you know, get all of the supplements that are required to detox effectively, or you have people who are on immunosuppressant drugs who can't get off those drugs because they, you know, they would risk their life doing so, those people need what's called, what I like to refer to as an antibacterial surrogate. So you actually have to replace that antibacterial action in your skin with an antibacterial, and benzoyl peroxide is a really, really good solution for that. Um, and so, you know, I, I, but in terms of like looking at the spectrum of acne treatments, right, so you have the more holistic remedies, the more conservative therapies, um, and then you move to more like okay, acids and chemical peels, and then you have like benzoyl peroxide, and and then you move to like the topical systemic antibiotics and then Accutane. And, and in terms of looking at the spectrum of things, benzoyl peroxide, in my opinion, I think it's absolutely worth giving a try way before you try Accutane or systemic antibiotics or topical antibiotics because you're, you know, these have longstanding, potentially longstanding side effects, whereas benzoyl peroxide doesn't. Um, and you can mitigate any potential issues with side effects by using the right full routine and counteracting those negative side effects. So um, a lot of people like to jump from here to here and I'm like, well, no, just try here first because you're gonna really save yourself a lot of, you know, potentially, you know, worse issues in the long run just by seeing if you can go with a more conservative therapy like benzoyl peroxide. So in my opinion, I, you know, I like to take a very integrative approach. I think that, if you need conservative treatment and help, benzoyl peroxide should be the first place you go. And I totally agree with like not um, being totally against pharmaceuticals or anything like that. But I always want to avoid hormone disrupting chemicals and parabens and SLS in my skincare just personally. Sure. So are there yeah. any like good drugstore over the counter benzoyl peroxide products that are pretty like safe to our hormonal health? Yeah, so um, I haven't seen any benzoyl peroxide um, 
treatments that contain like parabens in them, for example, because the great thing about benzyl peroxide is that it's actually a antibacterial agent. So parabens mm -hmm. that you mentioned are a preservative. Um, and they're a very effective preservative, which is why they're often used in more conventional products because they're kind of like a foolproof preservative. And preservatives are very, very, very important in cosmetic in cosmetics because if we're talking about you know the low doses of certain ingredients um, in different products versus the very acute and very real potentially deadly risk of pathogens in your in your you know cosmetics, you want to go with the one that's like you know, the least risk possible. And so although we like to avoid preservatives and obviously, you know, I'm, I'm not, I don't use parabens in my products. I try to avoid those um, preservatives where, you know, I don't have any of them in my products and I try to avoid them where possible. Um, but I also like to, you know, like make exceptions for things like phenoxyethanol. If a product has a lot of really like bacteria pro growth promoting ingredients like soy lecithin, um, amino acids, all of those things, which can be, you know, vectors for bacterial growth. Um, I'm definitely going to choose something like phenoxyethanol over something like risking my life with potential pathogenic bacteria in my cosmetics. So, but with all of that said, benzyl peroxide itself is an antimicrobial agent. So you'll find that a lot of these benzyl peroxide treatments don't actually have things like parabens or other, um, preservatives in them because it acts as a preservative itself. Um, the thing that I've seen most commonly in um, benzoyl peroxide treatments is something, uh, things like um, disodium EDTA and um, also things like carbomer. So carbomer is a thickening agent and just changes the viscosity of the product, but it's derived from petroleum. So for those who are trying to avoid petroleum-derived ingredients, um, carbomer can be definitely be one of those. Um, and then there are things like disodium EDTA, which I mentioned, which is a chelating agent. So it actually binds to heavy metals, like if there's any heavy metals in the water that they use in to make the cosmetic, uh, disodium EDTA is going to actually bind to those heavy metals and prevent them from being absorbed systemically. So there are natural alternatives to things like that. Um, you know, different polymers can be, you know, rheology or, you know, thickening agents. Um, and then you have, you know, things like phytic acid, which is a natural chelating agent that can be used in place of disodium EDTA. I am not a hundred, like off the top of my head, I can't think of a product that um, uses those, alter those alternatives or the exact ingredients in all of the different benzoyl peroxide treatments. Um, but there are definitely like a wide range available. Um, the biggest thing you want to look for though when you're getting benzoyl peroxide treatment is that you're going for a 2.5% as opposed to like a 5% or a 10% because those are often like the percentages that are available. And the thing about 5 and 10% is there are actually no more effective than the 2.5%, but they're actually way more irritating. So you really only need the 2.5. Um, so as long, so you can kind of like customize what kind of benzoyl peroxide treatment you're looking for based off of that information. So if you're looking for a more natural, you know, there, there's some ingredients to look for and avoid, um, but generally it always <clears throat> remains the same, whether you go, you know, from kind of like the lower end, which is tends to contain like more synthetic ingredients versus the higher end, which, you know, in some cases will contain these like you know, all natural alternatives to some of those ingredients that I mentioned, but in all cases going to be 2.5% benzoyl peroxide. And how would you recommend like incorporating this into a skincare routine? Would it be something that you do daily or a few times a week? Yeah. So could you just give like a general skincare routine for acne yeah. prone skin? 
Yeah, so <clears throat> the approach, I, I kind of explain this. I have a free ebook um, on my page that basically outlines this, but basically the gist of it is, is that you want to take um, kind of like a sequencing approach. So <clears throat> doctors a lot of times will do this with their patients where they'll put them on a low dose of a therapy, see how they respond, and if they don't respond, they up the dosage or add another, you know, type of medication in there to and then they gauge response and over time that kind of will dictate the treatments and that will kind of clue you also clue you in into like what else might be going on um, that could potentially be an issue so I take the approach of we want to optimize pH we want to optimize a little laic acid and vitamin E in the skin and then we want to repair the skin barrier um, while also you know like effectively cleansing the skin and removing pollutants and all of that right so I take the approach of you want a double cleanse routine that's a staple in every routine which essentially you take like a cleansing oil product which can be you know just like your standard oils that you have around the house and then you just you know you massage it in and then you wipe it off and then you follow up with a cleanse but I really really like oil to milk cleansers where you pump it into your your, um, your hand you massage it in and then you just rinse it straight off it turns into a milk when you rinse it off and I think that's a really great way to um, perform a double cleanse which is essentially just two cleanses um, so you start with that oil to milk cleanser preferably and then you move on to just like your standard like what everybody would know as a cleanser a standard cleanser you know it's kind of maybe a little bit foamy um, and this is going to help remove all of the you know kind of debris from the oil um, that you've just put on and then it's also going to actually deep cleanse the skin and there's a lot of misconceptions about cleansing um, some people think like oh cleansing is harmful because you know, it strips the skin. In actuality, um, you have pollutants and allergens and, you know, all of these other molecules on your skin that actually need to be removed. Otherwise, they're going to cause inflammation over time. So the cleanse is actually a really important step. And it's so long as you are using a pH balanced, um, gentle cleanser with some really gentle surfactants, you mentioned SLS is one you want to avoid. And that is definitely one you want to avoid because it's very, very harsh and stripping. And it's very alkaline. Whereas you have some of these other, um, you know, surfactants like desoflucoside, cocoflucoside, um, you have, you know, things like cocomidopropyl betaine, which is a very gentle surfactant that can help you actually get those pollutants and allergens and irritants off of your skin. But they can also, you know, they don't do it in a way that is really, really stripping to the skin. So those two together, I think they remove makeup, they dissolve the pollutants, and then they remove all of it from the skin, right? So you're left with this clean, fresh base. Then you decide what you want to put on and nourish your skin with. In my personal opinion, I think linoleic acid oils are the best option, obviously because they're directly addressing that deficiency, and then vitamin E because obviously direct addressing that vitamin E deficiency. And that together is going to help repair the skin barrier, which is going to prevent free radicals and inflammation from increasing on the skin. It's directly addressing those issues that we see um, in acne prone skin. Um, and then, you know, some people need a follow up. They need like a ceramide cream. So, ceramides, which obviously linoleic acid is what, you know, is the precursor to your ceramides. But some people don't actually, um, they, their skin barrier is so depleted that they need, you know, some help. So, ceramide creams are really, really great in that respect. Um, and I always like that, you know, when you have the oil on your skin, it's kind of just sitting on the surface of your skin, but if you layer an additional kind of like, you know, moisturizer on top of it, that's like, you know, somewhat kind of thick, 
you put it on there and it just pushes all of that magic like deeper into the skin um, because you're just essentially forcing it in through massage um, and these you know bigger molecules like pushing it in um, so I like to do use a ceramide cream and that's what I recommend to all of my you know kind of followers and um, readers and um, I've seen a lot of success with it and ceramide creams are just amazing so you're basically repairing the skin barrier giving your skin the nourishment it needs and then you have this cleansing routine so those are like the staples in any routine right so if you follow that routine for two months and you still you know maybe your acne improves maybe it doesn't if your acne doesn't improve then that kind of signals to me like hey even in under optimal conditions your skin is still having a lot of trouble maintaining the bacterial load on your skin because um, we don't want to reduce the bacteria too much, but we also don't want it too high. So that they, both ends of the spectrum cause issues. So your skin's having trouble maintaining its bacterial load. What can we do to fix that? Um, so then we add in benzyl peroxide. We maintain all the other, um, the, all the, the rest of the protocol, because um, the vitamin E is going to counteract any free radical damage that could potentially hasten aging as a result of using benzyl peroxide. So the vitamin E counteracts that. And then benzoyl peroxide can also kind of mess with the skin barrier, but that's easily counteracted by, by using a ceramide cream. So you get all of the antimicrobial benefits of benzoyl peroxide, but then you actually, you, then you, you, know, you have all of the side effects mitigated um, by all of these different other ingredients that are in your whole skincare routine. So I like to take that approach where you start with the base routine, you gauge how your skin kind of functions, and that's the most conservative routine. If you don't have to in introduce a more conventional treatment like benzoyl peroxide, then that's amazing. But if you do, you know, then you have that option too, and you have the ability to counteract any negative side effects. Perfect. That was so great. I'm going to include the um, guide that you mentioned as well in the yeah. show notes for anyone. Yeah. I'm guessing people are going to want to check that out. Yeah. Um, and you're right. People read benzoyl peroxide causes um, premature aging and it's yeah. so disrupted and they just like rule it out completely but I'm yeah. like you can counteract some of that with other products so it's yeah. never just like yes or no it's like yeah it's individual like how much you're using it the percentage right. as you stated yeah yeah and sorry I forgot to mention how often to use it so the you can use you start off usually once a day to kind of like introduce your skin to it and then you can pump it up to twice a day um some people don't necessarily need um, that much and some people you know may not even need it long term people that may need it long term are people like who are still living in a moldy apartment um you know people who are on immunosuppressants currently may benefit from something like benzoyl peroxide long term whereas if you have the chronic bacterial acne that is dysregulating the immune system on your skin you can actually you know use it for like three or four months and then slowly taper off of it and see how your skin kind of can it maintain you know, it's um, antibacterial action. Um, and then if it doesn't, you know, you kind of reintroduce it and see the signals to me that there's deeper issues like, you know, mold toxicity. So, um, but yeah, generally between once to twice a day is sufficient. Great. And I do want to chat a little bit about the internal factors. So the people listening have already heard me talk about like PCOS and high androgens and solutions for that and gut health and how infections, parasites, SIBO, low stomach acid, whole yep. bioflow affect the skin so we'll kind of skip over that i'll just give like the reminder definitely start there but there's three areas that i wanted to ask you about because again they're not really spoken about so the yeah. first one is the um the fats that we eat so the healthy yeah. fats so obviously like applying topically 
can be really useful and obviously it influences um, the sebum production and the sebum quality with like the diet that you have but yeah. there's a lot of especially like this year last year a lot of fear around PUFAs polyunsaturated fatty acids and like a very um, overemphasis on saturated fat as yeah. like the cure-all so yeah. please could you clear this up and chat about like why we favorite <laughs> My favorite topic. Um, yeah, so I've definitely been like a hardcore, like ride or die, let's dispel this proof of myth person. Um, it's really interesting because they're, they're called essential fatty, like essential fatty acids are our omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids. Our body can't make those. So we actually have to, we can only obtain them through the diet. Whereas like omega-9s and saturated fats, our body actually makes itself. Um, so omega-3 and 6, right, they have essential functions in the body. They, you know, primarily within the immune system, omega-3 and omega-6 are critical for immune function. Obviously, saturated fat plays somewhat of a role in the function of the immune system, but omega-3s and omega-6s are, they are the precursors to all of our prostaglandins, which are the, they're the mediators of the immune system. Omega-3s generally have anti-inflammatory effects, where omega-6s um, some forms of omega-6 can have pro-inflammatory effects, um, and it just depends what, what your conversion looks like. So omega-6 um, linoleic acid, which we already talked about because it's in, this, you know, we want to address that deficiency in the sebum. Omega-6 actually, linoleic acid can actually be converted into various different forms of omega-6s. So it goes from linoleic acid to gamma-linoleic acid to dihomogamma-linoleic acid to arachidonic acid. Arachidonic acid is the highly inflammatory um, omega-6 that, that everybody is talking about. But arachidonic acid at low levels can stimulate hair growth. Um, you know, it's, it's essential for fighting infection. If you don't have enough arachidonic acid and you get infected, you're, you could potentially risk you know, something like sepsis. <laughs> um, so omega-3s omega counteract that, but also keep it in check to where it's beneficial, but it's not, you know, causing a bunch of issues. So they work synergistically. Um, there's a lot of science behind the idea of poop oxidation, and it's a very nuanced topic that would take hours to like fully explain. We'll come, you can come um, back and we'll do a part two. Yeah, we can do a <laughs> Spelling the poop myth. Yeah, um, but generally the, you know, what we want to really kind of establish is that PUFAs don't exist in isolation in the body. So the, the main argument is that PUFAs, because they are polyunsaturated, which means they're more prone to oxidation, it means that they automatically oxidize in the body and then that, that causes free radicals and then that causes issues. That's not the case because PUFAs, obviously, they are way more than just their carbon saturation. You you can't like just take that like aspect of them and immediately translate that to oh they're going to cause oxidative stress in the body no, just reductionist thinking yeah reductionalist exactly and so we have you know you have pufas that exist in whole food form and they have you know antioxidants in their whole foods like you know almonds and you know, walnuts and like all of these different things that actually prevent oxidation in the body. And then if you are you have sufficient levels of antioxidants in the body, the whole time PUFAs are being transported to your cells, they're protected by antioxidants. So they don't automatically oxidize. And if they do oxidize, like people like to confuse causative and consequence. So PUFAs 
you know, may, you may find oxidized PUFAs in the body, but are these oxidized PUFAs a, a cause for disease or are they a consequence of disease? Because oxidative stress will absolutely, if you have excessive oxidative stress in the body and you put PUFAs in the body, sure, they're gonna be more prone to oxidation, but are, is it about removing PUFAs from the diet or is it about fixing the underlying reasons of why you were so prone to oxidation in the first place? So, you know, and you could argue that like PUFAs actually have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory effects. So they're actually gonna help counteract some of that oxidative stress. And in some cases, inflammation and free radicals are a result of PUFA deficiency, um, omega-3, DHA, and EPA deficiency. And then also not converting, you're converting too much linoleic acid to arachidonic acid, as opposed to these anti-inflammatory dihomogamolinoleic acid forms. So it's a very nuanced topic. I'm sure I'm probably just confusing a bunch of people with all no. of these big words, but um, yeah, it's, it's a very, very nuanced topic. And as it relates to acne, obviously when we put omega-6 into our body, the linoleic acid gets transported from our gut into our blood, through our lipoproteins, um, and then to our skin, right? And so um, basically you don't want to avoid omega-6s if you have acne-prone skin. You just wanna make sure you're eating omega-6s in the right ratio to omega-3s, which is between like a three to four, three to four times more omega-6 than omega-3s. So you want to be within that kind of ratio, and that will allow sufficient linoleic acid to get to your skin and also prevent arachidonic acid from stimulating inflammation. So that's really, really important. The other really interesting aspect of healthy fats as it relates to acne, so squalene, which what we talked about, acne patients have 2.2 times more squalene in their skin than they do um, than regular, um, you know, normal skin, people without acne. And the really crazy thing is, so squalene is a precursor to cholesterol. And so cholesterol, when you have higher cholesterol levels in your blood, which studies show that acne patients do, they have higher levels of the LDL cholesterol, which is what takes cholesterol from, you know, your body and then takes it to your skin and like deposits it in the sebaceous gland. So then you have, um, you know, more of this cholesterol being transported to your skin. Well, the enzymes that create cholesterol from squalene, when there's lots of cholesterol being pushed into the sebaceous gland, it actually shuts down cholesterol production in the sebaceous gland because your sebaceous gland is like, whoa, I'm getting too much, you know, cholesterol from my body. I don't need to make any. So instead of the squalene being converted to cholesterol in the sebaceous gland, you actually have this squalene that is just staying as squalene. And so that obviously creates the potential for acne. So there's a lot of debate around why cholesterol increases. Um, saturated fats have been shown to increase LDL cholesterol. They also, in some cases, can increase HDL cholesterol, which is the cholesterol, the lipoprotein that takes cholesterol away from our skin. So we want to take cholesterol away from our skin so that way the squalene levels can actually reduce as they get converted to cholesterol. Um, but in general, saturated fats I've found can be problematic for acne. For that reason, you know, like potentially there's the case to, to make that they increase LDL cholesterol. But then there's also, you know, the issues of with PCOS, right? So we have PCOS, you know, they generally have, people with PCOS generally have higher LDL levels of cholesterol. Um, but they're also more prone to making androgens from, uh, 
saturated fat consumption. So saturated fat has been shown to actually, in an isolated form, has been shown to actually ramp up androgen production in people with PCOS. And so, it, it, but that's, that's just a very unique thing to people with PCOS, you know? I mean, there may be other, you know, pathologies that have that same issue, but that seems to be a very unique issue to PCOS, where saturated fat increases these androgens, which we know is connected to acne. So the really cool thing is like, we can both counteract the issues with cholesterol in the skin. And if you have PCOS, you know, if you have, if you are producing androgens when you consume high levels of saturated fat, there are ways to kind of mitigate these effects. So one of these ways is actually through PUFAs um, and through the consumption of monounsaturated fatty acids, which is omega-9s, oleic acid. So um, basically you can counteract the increased cholesterol supply to your skin and also those androgens by consuming omega-3 fatty acids, omega-6 fatty acids, and omega-9 fatty acids with your saturated fat, fatty foods. Um, so as long as you're keeping those in balance, studies show that omega-3s, omega-6s, and omega-9s can actually counteract those negative effects of saturated fat. So, so long as you're eating a balanced ratio of saturated fats to all of these other fatty acids, it's not going to cause an issue. Um, but people like to say, oh, saturated fat is the answer. It's so good for you. And it's like, okay, maybe for some people that don't have those issues, saturated fat in isolation and super high levels is not a problem. But then you, you know, you have people like who have PCOS, people who have um, APOE, um, apolipoprotein E uh, mutations in their genetics, which predisposes them to make more LDL cholesterol when they eat saturated fat. So there's all these nuances to the discussion where more people are prone to saturated fat, uh, LDL cholesterol production from saturated fat or androgen production from saturated fat, and then other people who can tolerate saturated fat just fine. Uh, in my experience, being somebody who has androgen issues and also has acne, saturated fat like ruins me. <laughs> I can't actually eat less than like a 95% lean green beef. If I eat 85% lean, it like makes me feel, just feel terrible, you know? Um, so it's, it's really a very individualistic thing, but it definitely can if you are prone to making more LDL cholesterol or more androgens as a result of saturated fat consumption, you absolutely can, it can lead to acne. So you really need to balance these different um, fatty acids, um, you know, that you're consuming so that it's like, you're optimizing um, for your body. So it all comes back to balance and I see being the danger when someone like has good results with eating a particular diet or cutting something out and they promote it to everyone, not yeah. taking into consideration that someone has PCOS or certain genetic profile. Yes. It's really not great. It really cause some issues. It's diet is so highly individual and not one, no one person is going to respond saying, you know, to the same diet the same way. So it's just really about, you know, trial and error and figuring out what works for you um, and not being afraid of all the critics who are like, you're eating X, Y, and Z. And like, everybody's experience is different. Like I, you know, people were posting like, oh my gosh, fish oil breaks me out. And, da, 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 da. and I'm like, well, did you have a high quality fish oil? Is it oxidized to begin with? Does it have you know, antioxidants to prevent it from oxidizing. Where are you storing it? Are you storing it in your cupboard next to your next to your stove, where all the heat from the cooking is oxidizing your fish oil, or are you storing it in the freezer where it should be stored? So there's just like I, I just feel like people like have very like dogmatic approaches that often do more of a disservice to acne patients and PCOS people with PCOS more so than anything else. And I'm just like, 
it's good to have lots of different opinions, but we also need to like, you need to present a very nuanced scientific um, argument to actually, you know, state your case. And most people, you know, they're all about ramping up and putting out content and getting people to buy their course and all this stuff. And it's like, that's great, but like, like it takes time to form a really nuanced scientific opinion. And oftentimes that means going beyond just like your foreknowledge of, you know, what you know and really testing your biases and going out and seeing what other information is out there and forming a really, you know, balanced opinion. Yeah, and I'm, I, I'm guessing you do this as well, like try and prove yourself wrong. Like don't just stick yes. in one lane, like look for the opposite, like opposite research proving that you're not true. And then over time, you'll have a really balanced kind of idea. And bear in mind that everyone is like very individual. And what works for you now may not even work for you in five, 10 years time. So not being like dogmatic and just sticking yep. with what's worked before absolutely yeah so 100 percent agree with that whole rant <laughs> another thing that i was really um like i actually learned from you because i had no idea um about is the kidney and acne connection so obviously i knew that they help with detoxification um, and stress can affect the kidneys and that type of yeah. system but could you again just basic science like how the kidneys like people would never think that they probably know the liver but how can yeah. the kidneys be related to acne yeah so the kidneys are really interesting because they have lots of entanglements with other systems the body systems in the body so you have the kidneys which are deeply connected to the nervous system through the adrenals and you also have um the you know the, the connection to like you know your blood vessels and you know your your blood pressure and all of that. So it's deeply connected with the cardiovascular system and the nervous system, which are all entangled all together. So um, the really interesting thing about the kidneys is that one of the principal hormones, they have this, this system within them called the renin-angiotensin system, um, renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, which is controls a lot of your nervous system activity and your cardiovascular system and can really, the activity of that system can really change depending on what you put in your body. Um, so for example, sodium, um, when you have really low sodium levels, it can actually increase angiotensin two levels, which is a part of the, um, uh, which is a part of the renin angiotensin system. Um, so that's just one example of how like a, a mineral can affect like your, the functioning of that kidney, or of your, of your kidney system, the system within that kidney system. Um, <laughs> So the, how it connects to acne, um, you have this renin angiotensin system, which is obviously very responsive to your diet. When angiotensin two increases, which is the principal hormone that controls things like blood pressure, um, it's, it's, that's the primary role is to regulate your blood pressure. Well, when angiotensin two gets too high, obviously it's because, you know, you, you need to, there's some kind of aberration that is causing it to need to affect the cardiovascular system, but that can also have domino effects elsewhere. So angiotensin II is a very highly um, free radical stimulating molecule. Um, it causes the activation of an enzyme called NADPH oxidase, which is the unit within your cell that actually produces superoxide. So superoxide is a very strong free radical. So um, researchers have actually proposed that this elevated angiotensin II through its NADPH oxidase, um, you know, the, that enzyme 
the activity of that enzyme can actually, you know, um, exacerbate PCOS. So they've connected it to that, which obviously we know that if you're worsening PCOS, you're also worsening your androgens, which can obviously affect your skin. Um, but the really interesting thing is that angiotensin II actually has receptors in the skin. So if you have angiotensin II that is getting made in the kidneys, it's traveling through your blood to your skin, stimulating NADPH oxidase, and then causing free radicals to accumulate in the skin and inflammation, which we obviously know is related to acne. Um, so there's that aspect of it as well, which is the connection that I found the most fascinating. And then there's also the nervous system. So angiotensin II activates our sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight nervous system. And obviously that comes with cortisol, that comes with adrenaline and all these different stress hormones. And um, cortisol, when cortisol gets elevated, it can stimulate uh, oil production on the skin, but it can also just mess with the... Um, the functioning of the nervous system. So when stress increases, um, you have what's called substance P. So substance P, when it increases as a result of stress, you have the activation of mast cells. So substance P activates the mast cells and that causes inflammation, which then leads to all of the different things. So you have three different pathways by which your kidneys actually connect to your skin. It's through the androgens, uh, the potential theoretical possibility that angiotensin II could stimulate um, androgen production potentially or exacerbate it. Then you have obviously the direct connection to the skin, and then you have the connection to the nervous system, which can lead to inflammation in the skin via substance P, which is just like a little neuropeptide. So I found the connection fascinating. So like for people who drink lots of coffee, who are constantly depleting their minerals, like me, um, you can potentially your angiotensin II levels might be elevated. And this can potentially be, you know, activating all of these pathways that lead to acne. Um, so it's, it's really that, really the, the king um, nutrient in that aspect is really minerals because your, your kidneys are like a mineral machine and they, you know, they process minerals and all of that stuff. So you, your minerals really affect your angiotensin II production. And what about with diet? So what are some of the foods that are mineral rich? And with the salt, yeah. like with people are salt, I think they're getting better. They're not as fearful of salt, but there's like different types, like the pink salt, the Celtic salt. What mm -hmm. would you recommend to like restore minerals? And are yeah. the, the antioxidants from diet the same ones that you would apply topically? So like the black cumin seed, the mm -hmm. um, vitamin E, or the other ones? Yeah. Yeah, so there's definitely, so like mineral rich foods, I would definitely like, well, I can't really recommend anything, but salt is, is amazing. I think salt is really, really amazing. And obviously the kosher kind of like table salt has been demonized, but real true salt, you know, like Redmond salt or Celtic sea salt or Icelandic sea salt is packed full of other minerals like potassium and magnesium that really balance out the sodium action, which is what you want. You want to consume all of your minerals in a very balanced way. You know, your sodium and your potassium and your magnesium should all be balanced. Um, and salt can be a really great way to do that. In fact, if you're not getting enough sodium, if you're severely sodium depleted, that can be, that can cause angiotensin II production. So you want to make sure that, you know, you are consuming enough sodium in balance with these other minerals. And you know, like you kind of mentioned, salt is a great way to do that, really high quality salt. Um, and then other sources of, you know, minerals like magnesium 
um, you know, cacao powder is a really good one, avocado, nuts and seeds, which also have the omega-6 linoleic acid, as well as some of those omega-3 fatty acids are really, really great because, you know, they're kind of like killing two birds with one stone. You're getting all of your minerals and then some fiber, which is good for your gut. And then you're also getting, you know, that omega-6 linoleic acid. Um, so all of that is, all of those are really, really great examples. Cacao powder is really high in, or just cacao in general, whether dark chocolate, cacao powder, cacao nibs are all really high um, in magnesium. So those are, you know, some really good examples. And obviously if you're deficient, you can supplement, um, you know, with so I find that the, you can't supplement with sodium or potassium, but obviously magnesium is a really popular supplement. Um, and the most important in that context is, you know, getting a chelated form. So you want to make sure that you're getting, you know, like a magnesium aspartate, magnesium orotate, magnesium glycinate, one of those. Um, or like an ionic magnesium is really cool too. Um, but in general, like with antioxidants, like you kind of mentioned, the interesting thing is like, Antioxidants also downregulate angiotensin too. So um, the antioxidants in hibiscus are really good for that. Um, antioxidants in various different herbs and you know vegetables and fruits and um, eat, like one of the my favorite 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 foods is wild blueberries and also aronia berries, which are super super high in antioxidants and polyphenols. Green tea is another really great example. So all of those are, you know, as long, you wanna really focus on minerals and antioxidants with that, in that context. So um, that's definitely what I try to focus on. Yeah, aronia berries, they're, they're, um, they're like, they're kind of like the size of a regular blueberry, but they're like bright red instead of, well, so they look purple, but when you actually, the, their juice is actually bright red. They kind of taste like a cherry, um, as opposed to like, you know, like a wild blueberry, um, really has a strong blueberry flavor, so. I'm Googling as we speak. They're yeah. definitely on my okay. research list. Yeah, so like, when you look at the antioxidant power of foods, they're usually measured by an ORAC score. And uh, aronia berries are actually pretty high up on the list. Um, the highest though is amla berries, which are like an Ayurvedic um, uh, food that like, is often used in Ayurvedic medicine. Mm -hmm. um, amla berry is awesome. It's mm -hmm. very sour though. Yeah. So yeah. Usually the, the, the bad tasting stuff, usually the best Always for us. <laughs> Always well, yep. I could literally talk to you all day, every day. We'll have to have you back on for yeah. part two. Um, there's, I'm sure there's always like research coming out. And I, we did have a podcast scheduled like way, like months ago, didn't we? Um, yep. But it was like timing wasn't great. And yeah. I think you had some stress going on. I'm actually glad that we've done it now because I think you've only kind of learned a lot of this in the past year. So yeah. Hopefully in the, the next year, you might have some more stuff to talk about. So you're welcome yeah, sure. back anytime. But Thank you're literally you. like one of the smartest people I've ever spoken to. <laughs> and can you tell everyone your age? Because yeah, gonna... I'm 22. Yeah. <laughs> I'm 22. Yeah. I, and I, I, I don't have a college degree. I mean, like, I don't have any problem saying that because I like, yeah. I know I've done my due diligence with my exactly. research. Um, but yeah, I don't have a college degree. I'm just an esthetician mm -hmm. with my skincare products, but I love me some good, nuanced, yep. high quality research. <laughs> <laughs> and I've spoken to like some New York Times bestsellers, the top doctors in the, in the US, and your information has like blown my mind. And that is seriously impressive. Thank you so much. That's so sweet. <laughs> You're welcome. Please tell everyone. I'm sure they're dying to find you, follow you, try your products. So tell us 
where they can find you on social media, where they can get your products, all mm-hmm. that good stuff. Yeah, so my IG handle is Curve Wellness, C-U-R-V, like a curve. Um, curve Wellness is like has been like my trade name for like forever. Um, so I go by that on Instagram, on YouTube. I'm Sophia Ruiz. I don't really post there too often, but you know we may do some content, you know, in the future. Um, and then my website, curve-wellness.com. That's where you can find all of my products. Um, but I'm very active on my Instagram. That's where all my information is. Whereas you can buy my products on curvewellness.com. Yeah, your Instagram page alone is like a gold mine of information. I think I followed you from like the very start. Um, yeah. I think, was it Ali of Empowered um, Autoimmune? She was like talking about you. I was like, who is this new person? Yeah, yeah Ali's, Ali's been there since the beginning. She's one of my best friends. She's an person. She's also a really good follow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to have to have her on the podcast. You might yeah. need to connect us. Yeah. <laughs> But this was amazing. Thank you so much. Literally been one of my favorite episodes to record. Um, I'm not just saying that because I love acne, but yeah, just mind. I'll have to listen back to this 50 times. (laughs) Make notes. Thank you so much. You're welcome. It was great to connect, Sophia. Great to connect with you. Great talking. Thank you for having me on. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did and you would love a free copy of my hormone-friendly recipes guide, please leave me a rating and review and I will email you a copy as a thank you gift. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review and send it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. This guide contains delicious gluten, dairy, grain and refined sugar-free recipes and all the meals contain specific hormone superfoods. Don't worry, there are no boring salad recipes included. Come and say hi over on Instagram at Viva Natural Health as I share a ton of free content every day and you can get to know more about me and how I stay hormonally healthy. If you haven't already, check out my website, vivanaturalhealth.co.uk, for my blog and many free guides which cover everything from clearing acne to gut health and hair loss. If you're ready to identify and address the root causes of your hormonal issues, whether that's acne, PMS, PCOS, hair loss or problematic periods, take that first step today and apply for an enrolment call on my website. We'll use this call to discuss the steps that you need to take in order to achieve hormonal harmony and how I could help you get there. See you back here next week for another episode.